I'm Julie Hyde, and I believe you can't be a leader of others until you are a leader of self. It all starts with leading you. So if you are ready to be the best leader that you can be, you're in the right place. I'll be chatting to a diverse range of leaders who will spill the beans on their leadership, how they changed the game, insights into their mindset, and how they built the courage and resilience to be a modern leader with impact. Let's get into it. With me today is Andrew O'Keefe. His interest in the human side of workplaces goes back a long way. He grew up in the outback mining town of Broken Hill, Australia. He started his career in the mining and manufacturing industries and later filled senior HR roles with large organizations, including IBM. For the last 15 years, Andrew has run his own consulting and leadership education business, Cardwide Humans with a focus on helping organizations and individual leaders align their leadership practices with human instincts. And he has written three books, and we're going to be chatting about his third fascinating newly released book today, First Leaders. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Julie. Ah, I'm so keen to jump into this um, chat with you today, and I'm so happy to have you as a guest on Leading You. So shall we get straight into it? Sure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. What was it about your career journey that caused you to be curious about first leadership in First Nations to begin with? I didn't set out to be interested in First Nations, which was a a great learning and realisation for me. I I was just one of those lucky people who chose the right career for me. Even growing up in Broken Hill, I was fascinated with industrial relations and the way that good positive relationships between unions and management led to community benefits, let alone for all the workers involved. And so that's why I chose the career. And then I just happened to be one of those people who really enjoyed my career stream that I chose being human resources and just the fascination of work and people in large organizations. And for the last 15 years, yeah, I've been working in the area of, of human instincts and how that helps leaders and workplace practices. And, and then that, that just led to when my wife and I were visiting Africa in 2016, it just caused me to be curious about, uh, in that case, Maasai society and what does leadership mean? And that, that just launched me on this investigation that I've conducted this last seven years. Yeah, awesome. I'm just so curious about how your mind works and sort of how that, what even made you think about that? Was there a particular moment or did you observe something while you were in Africa? that sort of triggered you thinking, hmm, this is really interesting. I want to go. I want to go here. Yeah, there was uh, definitely. Um, I, didn't lo- I didn't know in setting up some interviews with Maasai elders in 2016 that I, I just inspired a-, a passion to investigate this subject that hasn't been covered in leadership practice before. And so when 
when Jude and I were planning this visit in early 2016, I thought it'd just be really interesting to sit down with some Maasai elders. So we're going to Kenya and to sit down with some Maasai elders and just explore. It's that curiosity subject, isn't it? Just explore what, what does leadership mean in their society? And I just thought it'd be really interesting to have this fresh perspective. And I think to your first question, that's just because I've been just curious on the human dimension and what makes for good leadership and things like that. So I just thought it was just going to be some interesting conversations. And, and what happened was in that first visit, there were just three people, but it, it's their response when I asked them about their leader. So each of these three individuals reported to a, to a different chief. And then when it got around pa- about halfway through a two-hour interview, I turned it to be personal about them and their leader. So instead of just asking about how leaders get appointed about that time of the interview, I said, so Julie, your chief, are they a good leader? And each person, their eyes welled up, tears thinking about this beautiful person in their life. And I thought, wow, there's not many workplace leaders who trigger that response. So I wonder, like, how can you get leadership so right? And so that, that became, that was the game changer moment. Not, not exactly at that moment, but reflecting later, a few weeks later back home. And, and that became that reflection point that, wow, I've only, wow, I've only just scratched the surface. There must be so much to learn. And I just set about, it was just that trigger of a quest or a passion. And then I just set about to investigate uh, leadership in First Nations and what workplaces can learn from that wisdom. Absolutely. Because um, it's funny, as I was reading through the start of the book, so I've I've just started um, reading it, you point out that First Nations people of all continents have been refining leadership like for millennia. I'm quoting you here. And and just had from the dawn of history, you know, figure out what works for them and what doesn't. And by comparison, like the discipline of workplace leadership emerged only 100 years ago. So that itself is something astounding when you read it on paper. And it's like, of course, <laughs> it was never gone there. What do you think that is? Yeah, it was a uh, sobering moment for me when I realized that, that I've, I've been, as you, a student of workplace leadership. I've just been really interested in reading books. My favorite subscription was the Harvard Business Review. I just devoured anything to do with good leadership practice. And so, yeah, it was a sobering moment when I realized just after that thought, there's so much to investigate. And then I realized that this has just been ignored because of the social setting. I think the reason is because of the social setting in the early 1900s when the discipline of workplace management or leadership emerged then the social setting of the time, unfortunately, sadly, didn't lend itself to this investigation. And so that, that wisdom was, was, yeah, just blindly ignored. And, and the sobering part of that is that my proposition that is that it, all the leadership tools, the concepts, the theories, the practice that we have that leaders are using today is really based on a shaky platform of what was investigated from 1908, 1911 onwards. 
and we never went back to fill in this gap. So the, the tools that we have are really based on a platform of investigation over just a hundred years. And I guess I'm, I'm proud of the contribution I can make through the people that I met, absolute credit to the uh, 11 societies they visited and the 12 that I've included. Uh, so credit to them and their, their ancestors for the amount of leadership thinking, the depth and breadth. And there's so many practical implications for workplace leaders. Yeah. Keen to get to a little bit of that, but what, what is the basic premise of first leaders? Yeah. So the basic premise of the book is that there's this wisdom refined over the millennia that will improve workplace leadership. And by, and by identifying that wisdom and sharing it in a practical way, then it will hopefully improve the nature of workplaces and of the leaders at every level leading in workplaces. So which First Nations did you actually visit? So you've mentioned Africa. So if we, if we go from, from West into Africa and, and East, so in Africa, as well as the Maasai, there's the Samburu who were part of the Maasai nation years and years ago, so they're similar. Uh, Bushmen in the Kalahari, which was just uh, such a joy and a privilege. Himba people also in Namibia. Uh, so that was four in Africa. In Australia, Aranda around today's Alice Springs. And then on the border of Western Australia and Northern Territory, uh, Pintabi people, so in the Western Desert uh, in, in Australia. Uh, and then New Zealand, obviously, to meet and talk with Māori in the Amazon. Uh, Warani and Kichwa. Uh, and Warani, for instance, a, a peaceful contact only began in 1958, so they're very much in touch uh, with their traditional ways. Uh, and then North America, uh, Haida in the far northern Pacific of Canada, and the Mohawk Nation, whose traditional lands are most of upstate New York and the community I met with is near Montreal. So they're the, they're the 11. And then at 12th, I was going to visit in Montana the Blackfoot people, but COVID uh, got in the way of that. And so I visited 11, but have included Blackfoot because of the amount of research that I did in preparation. So it was a phenomenal, phenomenal adventure. It must be just so fascinating going to such extreme places that are so different to here. And, and so I'm assuming that... Was your query to come and investigate like their leadership practices or their societal practices, was that openly accepted? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I, you know, ethically, uh, that was the point that I was making when I reached out to people and, and made contact that I'm investigating this sub, I'm investigating First Nations leadership and the benefit of, to workplace leaders. And at that stage, I might have been able to say the societies that I met and I would love to come and visit and include your society. So the, the critical thing for me was that, that that gave the community choice whether to be involved or not. And I, I was absolutely respectful of their choice. And, and every, every group I contacted was, was overjoyed, uh, like the, the Mohawk Nation, the key person there near Montreal, she said, I was just so proud that you would include Mohawk in your research. Like it was just a beautiful response from, from each place. And then they were just so open and 
uh, just sharing their knowledge and, and, of course, they would give credit to the old people, their ancestors, so they wouldn't claim, as I don't claim the knowledge is mine, I give credit to them and they give credit to their ancestors that this is knowledge which has been refined and passed down. So tell us about what you found from all of these extraordinary meeting leaders. Uh, so, so I distilled it into 11 principles and then each of these 11 principles leads to very practical and I think profound actions by workplace leaders and by organizations. So, so one is there's a consistent approach to how societies are organized. It's, uh, it's not random. If um, we investigated 12 workplaces or 12 large organizations, we'd find a great variability in the way the population is organized. In First Nations, there, there's a consistent, a common way across all those societies to how the population's organized. And that I recommend is because it suits human beings. Um, there's, there's commonality in how leaders get appointed, who gets to be the leader in a community or a society. And even to the point that if in hereditary systems, the next leader in line doesn't have the characteristics required, then they're passed over. And it goes perhaps to the next in line if they have the character to be a leader in, the, in this society. The ways in which communities are kept together, the incredible amount of investment and time in bonding. It's almost like in workplace jargon, we don't end up with disharmonious teams or silos in an organization with internal rivalries. So there, and then another one, which would be great to touch on if we've got time, is their approach to learning and development. There's really profound implications for workplaces in that. Awesome. So on that, on the first one that you just mentioned, really interested because um, when they're looking for the next leader, if that person's not ready, then they're passed over. So like, I'm just thinking about workplaces today and people would not be accepting of that at all. So is that just part of the culture in that that's accepted and so therefore for the next leader to come along like that there's still that? unification i suppose and you know the acceptance of that's just how it is well it became the culture because of the criticality of the role of leader and the role of leaders and that attribute that a potential leader has to have in their makeup is respect respect for other people and unless a person a candidate for leadership has that makeup where they respect other people then they do not get to be appointed as the leader. The community, in other words, is not prepared to sacrifice its uh, survival or the harmony amongst the group. You know, these really desirable attributes, it applies whether a society is organized as a small band or up to large organized populations. And I really admire that. I love that, that like, the criticality of leadership, like it is, incredibly important for the survival of their their communities. You know, in, in their societies organized a small band, such as the Kalahari Bushmen, you know, I, I wondered whether there'd be leaders or what would be the nature of leadership. And very, very much 
there are leadership roles. So the band has a leader. And would you believe I, I spoke to three older Bushmen who grew up as teenagers and young, young adults living the traditional life. So they could tell me about you know, their grandparent who was the, the leader and how that person came to be leader and what, what made for a good leader and what was the role of the leader. The, the critical role of the leader on who joins, who stays, uh, involved in the delegation of tasks, involved in settling any quarrels that break out. They're just critical obligations of leaders and why in the human condition, our groups do have leaders and we need to invest and make sure they have the right skills. Yes. And that is so fundamental to the success of leadership, isn't it? And I love that you were talking about respect before because um, I often see in the work I do that people, you know, there's a breakdown in relationships. It's often when people feel disrespected. So talk to me about learning and development because I think that's something that is really important um, and something that's maybe not treated with the respect that it needs to be, to be quite honest, in organisation. The the amazing, well, one of the amazing experiences I had was when I asked people that, how did did you learn about your culture? And and these, a lot of the people I'm thinking about right now uh, grew up in the Western world, so whether that's Australia, New Zealand, North America, and they're typically people in their 30s and 40s. How did you get to learn about your culture? And everybody immediately named one key adult in their life. Uh, Generally, someone two generations above. It might be a a great auntie, a a grandmother, a great uncle, or an elder. And it was for every person, there's this one key individual in their life. And that person obviously had such a positive impact on the person's life that I'm talking with. So just heartfelt, you know, beautiful memories of that person. And what, what led from that is, you know, realization for me is that with that individual focus on that person's learning and therefore well-being and socialization and teaching, in that system, you cannot be anonymous. You cannot be an individual who's lost in the system. And what worries me particularly about large workplaces is that there's a, a lot of people who feel anonymous or just like a number or they're, they're lost in the system. And, and I think the great remedy for that is for leaders and mentors, but let's talk about leaders first, to have this individual focus on a person's development where the person knows that one of the priorities of the leader is that person's development. And, and that applies whether you're a first-level leader or a divisional leader or, or a chief executive, is making sure that people absolutely understand one of your priorities is their development. And then as a leader to uh, encourage the, a mentoring relationship with a senior person in the team or somewhere else in the business, and so that that young person has a, 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 an older, almost like that older relative who's watching out for them, coaching them, mentoring them, developing them, helping them. And, and that, by the way, is like the apprenticeship model that we have in the trades and that we had in the guild occupations as they emerged in the, emerged in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. And that apprenticeship or extend that into a mentoring relationship, I think, is a really sound one. And 
and uh, should be encouraged with more investment in it. Mm. That that makes so much sense, and because you know we talk about that a lot in um, business, we talk about you know a being a really strong role model for others to emulate your behaviours in order to you know learn and grow, but also to have mentors or champions that will help you, um, you know, work through and not get lost in organisations because so many, so many do. There was one principle that I picked up in the in your book that was negative that we can still learn from, and um, you know, it's a huge topic today, which is of course the um, the gender inequity. Um, so what can businesses take from what you've learned about that? Yeah, one of the really key things investigating First Nations are really, by extension, early human history, is that there's been this bias in equity in favour of men. Uh, that what part of that also meant that men role, men's roles were more valued than women's roles. And what it also meant is that leadership was overwhelmingly an occupation of males. There, there was only two societies where women might get to be in leadership jobs, in the leadership roles. That was the Himba society in, in Namibia and also Maori society where the key person I met, he can track back his ancestors to when they first arrived in New Zealand in 950 AD. And he was able to tell me that there are okay, there have been occasions when women have been in the chief positions, but, but the two of them are, those two societies are really by exception. And so there's this overwhelming bias in favor of men. And what, what's sobering and challenging about that is that I think it means that there's this something about in the human dimension, which causes the imbalance in favor of men versus women. And, and the point really is that unless we accept the deep-seated nature of that, then we'll keep investing but not succeeding in ensuring equity. I've, I've been around for a fair time and I was in IBM in the mid-1980s when good companies like IBM were investing in, um, in gender equity. But the point is we're still, we're still at the project, we're still at the task and we haven't achieved it. And, and so it's by my contribution to the topic is that now by acknowledging or identifying how far back this issue goes, uh, including in Western society up until very recently, then we'll keep spinning our wheels and not make a great enough achievement. And so this leads to a number of actions. And for those actions, I had the help of 14 women that I interviewed um, so that they would be identifying you know, some, some of the actions. Hmm, interesting. I was around, was working in the late 80s and um, at, a, at a large organisation and, you know, the project did start. And look, I always had fantastic career opportunities within that organisation. So I can't fold it, but still at that senior leadership table, there's just not enough females sitting around that table. So, yeah, it's awesome that, that, that you've actually included that in there. And that we can learn from. I love that what 
that your book is so practical and we've got that, you know, the practicalities that we can implement into organisations. So that I think that's really important. Gosh, this conversation needs to probably go on for hours. But um, also key to understand, like, what did you learn about yourself through all of this as a leader um, of yourself, um, of your organisation, and also teaching others? Well, certainly it was was very humbling, that realisation we touched on earlier that, uh, wow, what a blind spot I've had, as well as you know, Western society and workplace practice, that this, this wisdom has been ignored. I also got a greater realisation of the potential of humans in the natural environment, where, where First Nations are so clear that they are part of nature, not, not separate to nature. And so, like I was sitting down in a, a park talking to Charlie, one of the Mohawk elders, and he was making this point. He said, that, that blue jay in the tree over there, and then he pointed to his other side, and the robin in that tree, I didn't, I didn't hear or see the blue jay or the robin, they're no better than you and I. They're just different. And they have role, their role in nature and we have our role in nature. So there's this, this appreciation of yeah, humans as part of nature, not, not separate to it. And I think in the Western world, we have, a, we have a, a history of just seeing nature as a resource, uh, whereas in First Nations, uh, you know, it's absolutely one thing only, and that's that relationship you know, with humans and animals and plants and and it just, it leads to just being better in touch, I think. So that was, that was a really significant like personal reflection and takeaway for me. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, right. Just picking, I was just where my mind went when you were saying that we do see things as separate, but we all also focus on difference too. Um, and often we don't try and think about how difference can help us and what we can gain from understanding difference. Uh, the swallows have come back to nest or almost back to nest at our place. So last year, a, a pair of swallows built a nest on our deck and there's various swallows now buzzing around. They've come back to exactly the same spot. And in fact, my wife Jude saw five of them the other day. So it might be the offspring from last year too. And there's going to be a bit of competition about that nest, but I think I think that's fantastic that wherever the swallows migrated, they've come back to that. They didn't need Google Maps to get them back to this square meter on on our deck. How do they do that? There's just different intelligence. We think we're highly intelligent, but in nature, there's just differences in intelligence. Mm, absolutely. Sorry, Angie, you don't mind a book like this without hoping to achieve something by releasing your work. So what is it that you hope to achieve by releasing your work? I'm really proud of the contribution because it begins to fill this gap where we've ignored First Nations wisdom and there's so much to be learned. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that leaders, it can help leaders with their individual practice. Uh, I'm hoping that it can help organisations in terms of people or HR practices, 
And I'm hoping that through really reconciliation actions that it increases the respect that we have for First Nations. And and, and on my website, uh, firstleadersbook.com, there's a number of resources that will help people with each of those. So I'm, I'm just hoping that it generates dialogue and conversations. And it really that would really honour the people that I met who shared so generously with me. They shared with me, attracted to the idea that workplace leaders will benefit from their people's wisdom. That would be a great contribution. Mm, I love that, Andrew. And um, it's such a credit to you that so many people in you know different cultures and countries opened up to you. And I love that you're wanting to make this impact on the world. Something that really struck me was what you had in the front of the book as well, which was, you know, this book is for the next seven generations of leaders and that uh, I think that's so powerful because like you said at the start if someone got so emotional about talking about you as a leader and it meant something so much to them about who you were as a person to me that is phenomenal and it gives me goosebumps and I think it's something that we need to aspire to as leaders and I think that you know, will, as you say, contribute to all of the things that you're wanting to make an impact on and just make the world a better place. That's it, I think. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for your work, Andrew, and I'll be sharing all of the links as to where people can get in touch with you in the show notes. And I can't wait to get into right into this book and also your other books too. So um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Julie.